Chapter Two of The Blue Envelope. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading today by Don Larson in Minnesota. The Blue Envelope by Roy J. Snell. Chapter Two A Bold Stroke Rewarded. Bacon grease was spilled and toast burned in the preparation of breakfast which was devoured in gulps then with some misgivings but much determination the two girls hurried away up the beach in the direction from whence had come the pop-popping of their stolen motor-boat coming at last to the place where the sandy shore was replaced by ragged boulders they began making their way through the tangled mass of underbrush fallen tree-trunks and ferns across the point of land which cut them off from the next sandy beach. "'This would be splendid if it wasn't so serious,' said Marianne, as they reached the crest of the ridge and prepared to descend. "'I always did like rummaging about in an unexplored wilderness. Look at that fallen yellow pine, eight feet through if it is an inch, and the ferns are almost tall enough to hide it. And look at those tamaracks down in that gully.' They look like black knights. Wouldn't they make a picture? Not just now. Come on, exclaimed Lucille, who was weary of battling with the jungle. Let's get down to the beach and see what's there. There's a long stretch of beach, I think, maybe half a mile, but we must be careful how we make our way down. We might discover something, and we might be discovered first. To descend a rock-ribbed hill, overgrown with tangled underbrush and buried in decaying tree-trunks, is hardly easier than to ascend it. Both girls were thoroughly out of breath as they finally parted the branches of a fir-tree and peered through to where the beach, a yellow ribbon of sand, circled away to the north. "'Not there,' whispered Marianne. Lucille gripped her cousin's arm. "'What's that thing two-thirds of the way down at the water's edge?' Don't know. Rock, maybe. Anyway, it's not our motorboat. No, it's not. It's worth looking into, though. Let's go. Eagerly they hurried along the hard-packed sand. The tide was ebbing. The beach was like a floor. Their steps quickened as they approached the object. At last, less than half conscious of what they were doing, they broke into a run. The thing they had seen was a boat and a boat to persons in their position was a thing to be prized. Arriving at its side, they looked it over for a moment in silence. It's pretty poor and very heavy, but it will float, I think, was Marion's first comment. It's theirs. Thought it wasn't worth risking a stop for. But how did they get into our camp? We haven't seen their tracks through the brush. Probably took up one small stream and down another. The boat they had found was a wide, heavy, flat-bottomed affair, such a craft as is used by fishermen in tending pond-nets. For a time the two girls stood there undecided. The chances of their recovering the motor-boat seemed very poor indeed. To go forward in this heavy boat meant hours of hand-blistering rowing to bring them back to camp. Yet the thought of returning to tell Lucille's brother that they had lost his motor-boat was disheartening. To go on seemed dangerous. True, they had rifles, but they were, after all, but two girls against three rough men. 
In spite of all this, they decided in the end to go on. Pushing the boat into the sea, they rowed out a few fathoms, then set the sail and bore away before the brisk breeze. The fact that the oarlocks, which were mere wooden pegs, were worn smooth and shiny, told that the boat had not been long unused. In a short time they found themselves well out from the shore in a gently rippling sea, while the point behind which lay their camp grew smaller and smaller in the distance. Presently they cleared a wooded point of land and came in view of a short line of beach. Deep set in a narrow bay, it might have escaped the eye of a less observant person than Marianne. So, too, might the white speck that shone from the brown surface of that beach. "'What's that in the center?' she mumbled, reaching for the binoculars by her side. "'It's our schooner!' she exclaimed after a moment's survey. "'Yes, sir, it is. Anyway, it's a motor-boat, and if not ours, whose then?' "'We'd better pull in behind the point, drag our boat up on the rocks, and come round by land,' whispered Lucille. "'Yes, if we dare,' said Marianne, overcome for a moment with fear. "'If they have seen us and come out to meet us, what then?' "'I hardly think they'd see us without a field-glass,' said Lucille. Bending to the oars, they set their boat cutting across the wavelets that increased in size with the rising wind.' Ten minutes of hard pulling brought their boat in behind the point where it was quieter water and better rowing. This took them to a position quite out of sight of the white spot on the distant beach. If the pirate robbers were truly located in the bay and had not seen the girls, they were safe to steal up close. Well, suppose they have. If the worst comes to the worst, we can escape into the brush, said Marion. We won't be worse off then than we are now. If only we can catch them off guard and get away with our motorboat, said Lucille fervently. Two hours of fighting the wilderness brought them at last to the beginning of the short, sandy beach. By peering through the branches they discovered that a clump of young tamaracks, growing close down to the shore, still hid the white spot they had taken for their boat. Lucille stepped out upon the sand and then bent down to examine a footprint. Quickly she dodged back into the brush. "'They're here, all right,' she whispered. "'That's the track of the fellow with the mismatched feet.' "'Listen,' said Marianne. "'Sounds like shouting,' said Lucille, after a moment's silence. "'What do you suppose?' "'We'd better move around to a better position.' Cautiously they worked their way through the dense undergrowth, pausing now and again to listen, they laid their course by the sounds. These sounds resolved themselves into bursts of song and boisterous laughter. "'They're drinking,' said Lucille with a shudder. "'If they are, we daren't get near them,' whispered Marianne. Closer and closer they crept until at last they expected at any moment to come into view of the camp. "'It's no use,' said Lucille at last, shrinking back into the brush. "'I can't go on.' They're drunk, and all drunken men are dangerous. It is no use risking too much for a motorboat. Wearily then they made their way back through the brush. So sore were their muscles by this time that every step gave them pain. Missing their way, they came out upon the beach a hundred yards from their boat. There, behind the sheltering boughs of a dwarf fir tree, they threw themselves upon the bed of pine needles to rest. 
Look, exclaimed Lucille suddenly. What's that out there? Our motorboat, Marianne gasped. It's broken loose and is going out with the tide. They must not have seen it. Quick, our rowboat. We may beat them yet. With wildly beating hearts, they raced up the beach. Having reached the heavy rowboat, they pushed it off. Waiting knee-deep in the sea to give the boat a good start, they at last leapt into their seats and grasped the oars, and with strong, deft strokes set her cutting the water. Length by length they lessened the distance between them and the drifting prize. Now they were two hundred yards away, now one hundred, now fifty, now... There came a shout from the shore. With a quick glance over her shoulder, Lucille took in the situation. "'We'll make it,' she breathed. "'Pull hard. They're a long way off.' Moments seemed hours as they strained at the oars, but at last they bumped the side of the motorboat, and the next second found themselves on board. Marion clutched to the tiller of the rowboat while she swung round to the wheel. Lucille gave the motorboat a turn, and to their great joy the noble little engine responded with a pop, pop, pop. There came another shout, a hopeless one, from the robbers. "'We'll beat them! We—' Marianne broke off short. "'Look, Lucille, look over there!' To the right of them, bobbing up and down, as they had seen it once before, was the head of the strange brown boy. "'Do you suppose they did kidnap him?' said Lucille. "'We can go by where he is,' said Marion. "'They can't catch us now.' The boat swung around, and soon they were beside the swimmer. "'Look!' cried Lucille. "'His feet are tied tightly together.' He mustn't have been their friend. They carried him off, they had him bound, and he rolled down the beach to escape by swimming. They dragged the boy on board. Then they were away again, full speed, once more. Well, that's done, sighed Lucille, as she settled herself at the wheel. They've our rowboat, and we have theirs. I hope that after this they will let us alone. The person who is bothering me, said Marion with a frown, is this little brown visitor of ours. Who is he? Where did he come from? Where does he want to go? Where should he go? What are we going to do with him? That, said Lucille, wrinkling her brow, is more than I know. Neither do I know how those men came to steal him. They probably kidnapped him from his home, wherever that is, and have been making a slave of him. I think you are right, said Marianne, and probably the problem will solve itself in time. The problem did solve itself, at least part of it, that very night. The remaining part of the problem was to be solved months later, under conditions so strange that, had the girls been able to vision them lying away, like a mirage on the horizon of the future, they would have been tempted to change their plans for the year just before them. The first question, what was to be done with the little brown stranger, was solved that night. He solved it himself. The girls had decided upon maintaining a watch. Lucille was on the second watch at something like one o'clock in the morning, when she saw the brown boy stirring in his place by the fire. She was seated far back in the shadowy depths of the tent, with a rifle across her knee. He could not see her, though she could catch his every move in the moonlight. With a gliding motion he carried his two blankets to a shadowy spot, 
and there folded each one, laying one upon the other. He then proceeded to gather up certain articles about the camp. A small axe, a knife, fishing tackle and matches were hurriedly thrown upon the blanket. Now and again, like some wild thing of the forest, he paused to cock his head to one side and listen. Should I call Marion and stop him? Lucille asked herself. The question was left all undecided. The little drama being enacted was too fascinating to suffer interruption. It was like something that had happened in her earlier childhood, when she had lain in a garret, watching a mother mouse carry away her five children. Lucy thereby suffered a loss of six cents, for she would have been paid a cent apiece for the capture of those mice. The brown boy next approached the kitchen tent. He entered to appear a moment later with a modest armload of provisions. When these had been placed on the blanket with marvelous speed and skill, he converted the whole into a convenient pack. "'Shall I stop him?' Lucille asked herself. She was about to call out from her corner when a peculiar action of the boy arrested her. He appeared to be taking some small object from beneath the collar of his strange suit of birdskin. "'I wonder what that is,' she puzzled. Whatever it was, he walked with it to a broad, flat rock, and placing it in the very center, turned and left it there. The object gave forth such a startling luster in the moonlight, and Lucille was so intent about watching it, she did not realize that the brown boy had thrown the pack over his shoulder and disappeared into the woods. When she did discover it, she merely shrugged her shoulders and smiled. Probably for the best, she told herself. He's taken nothing of any great value and nothing we will need badly. And unless I miss my guess, he'll be quite able to take care of himself in the wood that is full of game and berries and where there are fish for throwing in the hook. Let's see what he left, though. Cautiously she crept out into the moonlight. A low exclamation escaped her lips as her hand closed upon the glistening object. As she examined it closely, she found it to be three teeth, apparently elk teeth, which were held together with a plain leather thong. But set in the center of each was a ring of blue jade, and in the center of each two of the rings was a large pearl. The center of the third was beyond doubt a crudely cut diamond of about two carats in weight. Lucille turned it over and over in her hand. Why, the poor fellow, she murmured, he's given us a king's ransom for a few trinkets and a little food, and I thought that he was stealing, she reproached herself. Her first instinct was to attempt to call him back, but, she told herself, my voice would not carry far in that dense woods. Besides, he wouldn't understand me, and would only be frightened. Returning to her tent, she hid the strange bit of jewelry, which to its wearer had doubtless been a charm, then waited to the end of her watch to tell of the strange occurrence to her cousin. When Marion awoke, Lucille told her story. Together, in that early hour of the morning, they exclaimed over the rare treasure that had come into their hands. Together agreed that somehow it must be returned to the original owner, and at last, after much talk on the subject, agreed that, on the whole, the departure of the brown boy reduced the possible complications to a considerable degree. The next day their aunt arrived, and with her a schoolteacher friend. 
With their forces increased by two, the girls were not afraid to maintain their camp. In fear of the return of the robbers, they established a nightly watch. That this fear was not unfounded was proved by the events of the third night of the vigil. It was again in the early morning, when Marion was on guard, that heavy footsteps could be heard in the underbrush about the camp. She had left the tent flap open, commanding a view of the shoreline. The gasoline schooner lay high and dry on the sandy beach within her line of vision. This she watched carefully. A man who dared to touch that boat was in danger of his life, for a rifle lay across her knees, and with the native hardihood of an Alaskan she would not fail to shoot, quick and sure. But the man did not approach the boat. He merely prowled about the tents as if seeking information. Marion caught one glimpse of him over the cooking tent. Though he was gone in an instant, she recognized him as one of the men who had stolen their motorboat. After a time his footsteps sounded far down the beach. Nothing more was heard from him. Guess he was looking for the brown boy, but became satisfied that he was not here, exclaimed Marion in the morning. Perhaps they'll let us alone after this, said Lucille. This prophecy came to pass. After a few nights the vigil was dropped, and the remaining days on the island were given over to the pleasures of camp life. The discovery of a freshly abandoned fire on the beach some miles from camp proved that Lucille's belief that the brown boy could take care of himself was well founded. His footprints were all about in the sand. Feathers of a wild duck and the heads of three good-sized fishes showed that he had fared well. "'We'll meet him again, somewhere, I am sure,' said Lucille with conviction, "'and until we do, I shall carry his little present as a sort of talisman.' The weeks passed all too quickly. One day, with many regrets, they packed their camp kit in the motorboat and went pop-popping to Lucille's home. Three weeks later saw them aboard the steamship Torrentia, bound for Cape Prince of Wales by way of Nome. They were entering upon a new and adventure-filled life. This journey, though they little guessed it, brought them some two thousand miles nearer to the spot where once again, under the strangest of circumstances, they were to meet the brown boy who had come swimming to them from the ocean. End of chapter 2